for Evelyn herself, she comes to him, you know, this brilliant woman, she's written a bunch of books, she's strong in the mystical element, but she has no church allegiance. And so he kind of said to her, okay, I think you really need to become part of a church community. And the other thing I suggest is that you start visiting the poor. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is our friend from Australia, Professor and Evelyn Underhill Scholar, Robin Wrigley Carr. I love getting to discover a new old writer, one that seems to have that depth of soul that makes you pause. Oh, oh, this goes deeper, sort of reframes the possibilities, a delightful reminder of the goodness of God and the relational availability of the kingdom, right in the midst of the messiness of ordinary life. This has been my experience this year, thanks to Robin's accessible work of introducing us to Evelyn Underhill. Back in episode 231, you may remember a delightful conversation I had with Robin Wrigley Carr about her work of editing Evelyn's prayer book. And today, I get the opportunity to once again talk with Robin, and this time about her book titled The Spiritual Formation of Evelyn Underhill. On a recent retreat, I began working with this book. I was so taken by Evelyn and her friend and spiritual director, the Baron Von Hugel. And it's a real treat for me to have another conversation with Robin and to get to share it with you. I spoke with Robin from her home in Sydney, Australia. Quote from Eugene Peterson. The most extensive and inviting introduction. A brilliantly written book. Okay, Robin, how how did that feel to have read that about your book? Well, I studied under Eugene Peterson, and um, he was incredibly inspiring. And I find as I'm teaching, I quote from him constantly. Uh, both from his books and from just conversations I've had with him. So to have him affirm the book meant a lot. It meant a real lot. And, of course, Eugene was the one who introduced me to the Baron in the first place. I remember talking to him in Scotland when he visited once while I was doing my PhD and he was kind of like, tell me about his handwriting, you know, what's it like reading his diaries? And, you know, I think to have him at the end of that process to say, you've nailed it, was really, really encouraging. It meant a lot. Yeah. What what else do you need? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It covers it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, because he was so impacted by Baron Friedrich von Hugel himself, um, you know, he'd poured over his writings for decades. There was a sense of this guy knows um, if I have interpreted uh, the Baron correctly. So yeah, it really did mean a lot. Yes. That's good. Could you tell me what is a baron and, and who is said baron that was so impactful in Evelyn's life and Eugene's too? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, Friedrich von Hugel uh, had an inherited title 
the Baron of the Roman Empire. His father was a diplomat and as far as I understand, uh, to have this inherited title meant that there was a stream of income coming through, uh, which gave this guy a lot of flexibility instead of having to go out there and get a real job like most of us. Um, he had the flexibility of being a gentleman scholar. Um, and given he had quite ill health, um, it meant that he would just do his reading and writing in the mornings and in the afternoon he would go for these gentle strolls around London and talk to friends or sometimes if he was sufficiently sick he'd just be lying in the dark. But he used to talk about how his ill health and I suppose, you know, given that he had the freedom as a baron with some income stream in his life, this freedom of letting his writings percolate so that he was living into them became a hallmark of, of his work. You can see that his writing has been prayed and a lot of people just churn out publications these days because they're flat out as an academic trying to keep their, <laughs> keep their job and <laughs> all these emails from students and people asking them to do endless jobs. Whereas he was really, he was really emphatic that we need to have a leisurely spirituality and rest and what he called non-religious interests, whether it be in his case, you know, chats with friends or the odd bit of gardening or um, he used to go to the theatre as in the cinema. This is early, early days in the 1920s. And he was really emphatic with Evelyn Underhill. You need to get some non-religious interests because you need balancing out. He didn't want us having all of our eggs in one basket. He didn't want us being so full up with Christianity and Christian jobs. He wanted us to have what he called moderation and this income stream and the necessity to rest because of his ill health. Now all of this just impacted the quality of his writing. And there's one book he wrote called Eternal Life. He says to his niece, I wrote the whole thing praying, read it as written. Now how many people will tell you that, you know, an amazing book that they've written, they wrote the whole thing praying? You need, you need time to write books in such a beautiful, prayerful space. And he had that because of this title. What was his health issues? Yeah, so at the age of 18, uh, he contracted typhus and that left him for the rest of his life with um, some sort of nervous complaint. It's interesting when you read his diaries, there's all sorts of... Um, it's almost like little medical notes, but it's all in shorthand, so you're not quite sure really what's going on. But obviously he's tracking things. Um, but he had a, a hearing uh, disability from the typhus and he had some sort of nervous health complaint his whole life. Uh, it's not completely clear what it was, but um, perhaps it wasn't even labelled in those days. But, yeah, he, he was a little bit sickly. A lot of his life. So that really meant that um, his letters of spiritual direction um, were really important because when he would actually be with uh, a spiritual directee one-on-one, -on -one, he would tend to talk at them 
rather than it being more a listening presence, which is often what we say is the essence of spiritual direction. <laughs> you know, the spiritual director asks really good questions and listens and discerns, whereas in some ways in his face-to-face -face spiritual direction it was a little bit more like a lecture, mm. but in his letters he could respond to particular questions and he could uh, write things slowly and prayerfully. So, for example, in relation to Evelyn Underhill, he would write letters to her, even though they lived a few streets away in London, they would write letters and he said, I only want to see you every six months. Now, that's quite different to his <laughs> niece, Gwen Green, who he, you know, had stay very often and um, sometimes saw, you know, weekly, fortnightly. But certainly his, his hearing issues did impact his one-to-one -one spiritual direction quite significantly. Why did he only want to see her twice a year? I don't know. Um, that's a great question. I think he would spend a day pondering her spiritual state and then he would write a long, long letter with headings with all these different areas of her life where he'd been prayerfully considering and it's based on her reporting to him about how things are going. So it would kind of be his recommendations about the next steps and perhaps he just wanted to have some space so she could actually put those things into action. Um, but, you know, a friend of Evelyn's tells us, in fact, she did see him in between times and they had chats and they had a really lovely friendship that went on really from when Evelyn wrote Mysticism in 1911 and they're in contact. And then in 1921, she comes to him in midlife despair, having lost some cousins in First World War and realising that her disembodied mysticism doesn't quite cut it. And she's really struggling. So she's seen as a bit of a guru and all these people want to have spiritual direction from her. And she's just lost because she's not part of a church community. So she'd been in this borderland for a decade. She'd She'd felt that she wanted to convert to Catholicism about a decade earlier and then the Catholic modernist crisis turned her off that as well as her fiancé at the time saying he wouldn't have anything of it. And so eventually she becomes an Anglican. So it's kind of interesting that here she is with this Catholic spiritual director and she's coming into some of the most profound streams of Catholic spirituality through von Hugel, whose own spiritual director was Abbe Uvelin a Parisian spiritual director. So she's having all this input of Catholicism and she becomes a practicing Anglican. And yet she still would go to Catholic churches and by the mid-30s she was really fascinated by Orthodox spirituality and was involved in ecumenical dialogue between Anglicans and Orthodox. So she was really, really ecumenical and she used to say, I just want to use the label of the church so that I don't cut down my options in terms of people who are willing to read my work or to talk with me. So, yeah, I, I think of her as a spiritual ecumenist because she was uh, really praying for church unity and she was engaged in some prayer movements at the time for church unity and saw prayer as essential there, not just talking about our differences or our similarities. She really saw it as prayer, uh, as the, the way to participate well in ecumenism. What would you say were some of the key components in her own formation? Yeah, so she says, she says of the Baron, I owe him my whole spiritual life. 
mouth. That's a pretty That's strong. strong statement. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, she, she really only had from 1921 to 1925 when the Baron died that she was directly influenced him, influenced by him as a spiritual director. But of course, she'd been reading his work for a long time. So he'd published, um, his two volume, The Mystical Element of Religion in 1908. And she knew about that work. Um, so obviously the Baron had a huge influence on her. She had other spiritual directors after that, like Somerset Ward, an Anglican, Walter Frere. So some of these people also influenced her, but it was obviously the Baron that had this huge impact on her spiritually. I think also we can say that for a long time she was just influenced by a lot of different Christian mystics. She was the one who really tried to bring some of these Christian mystics into the common view by translating their work, by writing accessible introductions. Um, so, you know, there was this flourishing of Christian mysticism. Who were some of these folks that were influencing her? So she was really influenced by St. Teresa of Avila, um, Jean-Pierre de Corsade, Francis de Sales, Francis Fenelon. All the um, hits. And of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, she wrote biographical studies of mystics such as Jacoponi da Todi, The Cloud of Unknowing, Walter Hilton's The Scale of Perfection. She wrote a book in 1925, The Mystics of the Church, where she describes a whole lot of different Christian mystics. It's like a who's who in Christian spirituality through the ages and the different, um, you know, the Italians and the Span Spaniards and all the rest. The interesting thing is that after she's deeply influenced by Baron von Hugel, she stops talking about mystics and she starts talking less about mysticism and more about the spiritual life and saints. So it's intriguing that she shifts to this, it's almost like a wider term, the spiritual life, living the spiritual life, living the spiritual way. I need to say too that part of her early formation that she rejects was that she was part of something called the Order of the Golden Dawn in around 19, the early 1900s, just for a couple of years. And this was a occult, um, not quite a cult. It was almost like a, oh, how to describe it? Charles Williams was a part of it too and then got out of it. A, a secular a secular group um, of kind of intellectuals of the day that were interested in the mystical seat of the day but weren't attached to Christian churches. And she was in this for a while and then, um, you know, the, the term that she was given was the one seeking spiritual enlightenment, seeking the light. And she comes to reject this whole approach. But after that, she's sort of in this borderland, as I said, not attached to a church and so quite a broad spirituality. And then when, when she comes to the Baron, she realizes that she needs a church community. And more importantly, she comes to experience Christ. And she says, somehow through his prayers or something, he enabled me to experience Christ. She says, it was like watching the sunrise very slowly. And then suddenly I knew what it was. And she says that, Suddenly taking the Eucharist was completely different and as she read scripture, it came alive with things she'd never noticed before. 
So thereafter, she has this beautiful, rich, Christocentric spirituality. And I, I mean, I think the fact that she has this profound conversion makes her an intriguing figure because, you know, I often say to people, you know, read her stuff after about 1922. Because she was it's very those known, later. right? Oh, yeah. Before she was, she was complete, very known, yeah. She was completely known. And, and she's still very famous um, in secular circles for mysticism, which is this big tome that was written in 1908. And then that's bookended with her final, well, her final big work, Worship, that became a religious book of the year in America in, I think it was 19... Uh, 37 or so. So it was published in 1936. And that's an altogether different book to mysticism. So mysticism is like, you know, all the mystics and, you know, by two decades later when she revises the work, she kind of takes out some of the slightly interesting characters and puts in St. Paul. So it's kind of like you see this transition of someone who becomes uh, more anchored around Christ and around scripture and around Trinitarian understandings and has this beautiful alertness to the spirit. So there's a lovely transition that we see uh, across her writings and across her letters too because, of course, there's two volumes of letters that we have and you can see the sort of advice she's giving in the early days and how that shifts as she herself changes and also becomes more confident about spiritual discernment and in the later years, she says, I, I feel like it's like the spirit tells me what to say. So she becomes more in tune with the spirit and, and hearing the voice of Christ in her spiritual formation of others. I find it helpful that uh, here the Baron doing spiritual direction in a very different way than we you know think of it. And, uh, you know, that there are a lot of things that are helpful. What do you, would you say were some of Evelyn's contributions to the, the discipline of spiritual direction? Well, I think she's echoing a lot of the Baron's uh, key principles, to be honest. And um, one of those principles that she echoes is uh, concerns what the Baron called the three elements of religion. And this idea of being well-rounded and well-balanced. If I could just for a minute say what the three elements of religion is. So he used to talk about um, the mystical element as the experiential, you know, the, the sense of encounter and the intellectual element being head knowledge, the rational, the theological, and then the most interesting element, the institutional element being our church involvement, um, the communal element, the sacramental, the community, the tradition, this whole sense. And he used to say that we need these three elements to have a full balanced Christian life. Now, he used to say that we tend to specialise or even become naturally drawn to one or two of those elements and so when he had someone for spiritual direction, he used to intentionally focus on the element that was weakest. So for Evelyn herself, she comes to him as an intellectual who's, you know, this brilliant woman. She's written a bunch of books. She's 
had a whole lot of experiential, mystical encounters, so she's strong on the mystical element, but she has no church allegiance. And so he kind of said to her, okay, I think you really need to become part of a church community. And the other thing I suggest is that you start visiting the poor. And so you can see he's trying to get her involved with communities of faith and also service to try to get this institutional element um, more operating in her, you know, go and uh, take the Eucharist, get in these rhythms of Christian practices with a bunch of people. And you can see her actually echoing some of these ideas with her own spiritual directees where she's encouraging them to be involved in church. And she's kind of saying, you know, don't, don't go there uh, looking for this amazing aesthetic incredible experience, go there to serve, go there to be involved, go there to encourage others, but go, have these rhythms. She encourages people to a rule of life, so this sense of intentional spiritual practices. Uh, She encourages them to rest and take holidays. She she uses the same term, non-religious interests. Um, She tells them it's important to not just focus on your feelings but to recognise that a lot of these intentional aspects are a matter of the will. So we decide, you know, I want to partake in these particular practices and I'm going to do it. So there's a sense of uh, not just waiting till you feel like doing it, just deciding these are some of the practices that I want to be involved in. Uh, so this, this idea of um, engaging in the Eucharist as your spiritual food being part of a Christian community because it heals our individualism. Um, And another thing that she was into was she encouraged them to pray liturgy and actually pray things out aloud, not just in our heads. So she she was into meditation and she would talk about, um, you know, silent prayer and prayer of quiet and things like this, but she would also talk about the importance of the spoken word which she believed has suggestive power that reaches and modifies our deeper psychic levels more than inarticulate thought because she reckoned that our centres of speech are closely associated with our mental life. So one thing that she would talk about was praying the Psalms out aloud to arouse our dormant spiritual sense. So I think, you know, there's, that's, a, that's a few ideas. Um, she, she was incredibly... Uh, she's incredibly loving to her spiritual directees, very relational. She would talk to them, talk about them as her family. She didn't have children herself, so uh, she gave a lot of love. She gave a lot of time. She seemed to be unhurried. And, of course, she was fortunate that she was, you know, an Edwardian woman of of leisure, if you like. You know, she had a barrister husband and she would... She had a couple of household helps, so she had time. She'd do her writing in the morning and then she would have spiritual directees in the afternoon. She'd write letters to them in the evening. Uh, she, she had some, some leisure, but she was also incredibly generous and Charles William talks of her motherhood of souls and I kind of see that as her spiritual direction and then secondly her retreat leading, which was. Um, a profound 
contribution. And, you know, she was a trailblazer. She was someone really important in the interwar period in terms of the retreat leading movement, a bit of a pioneer, you could say, in England, even leading Anglican priests on retreat in, in 1926 as a laywoman, which is pretty incredible. I'm curious, what about her life inspires you? I think what most inspires me is her um, her prayerfulness and her playfulness. When you read her retreat talks, I think they're what I find most inspirational. Um, her Her writings just feel like they're coming from a deep place, from a deep place of reflection, contemplative engagement. You know, a lot of the writing that comes out this day doesn't seem to have the same weight. It doesn't seem to resonate quite as much. Perhaps we've become a bit fast, a bit quick, a bit churning things out at speed. It feels to me like she's spent a lot of time praying before she comes to deliver. So that would be the first thing I find when I'm reading her that I have to stop and digest. So there's a, a depth about it that comes from a deep place, a deep experiential place. It feels like she walked the talk, if you know what I mean. And then secondly, her playfulness. You know, she some of her illustrations are slightly quirky and um, humorous. You know, when people talk about the retreats that she led, there was always laughter in the room. And so she, she was obviously a woman of intensity. And most people that lead retreats and even attend retreats tend to be, have a certain intensity about them, maybe an intentionality. But she was playful. I think that attracts me because I think we need the light and the shade. And I think when we're on retreat, obviously it's a intentionally serious, attentive time, but we need to lighten up and have some fun as well. So she used to have these timetables for her retreats and, you know, there'd be times for addresses and there'd be times for meditation and there'd be times where she'd give half an hour spiritual direction, there'd be a sign-up sheet, and then she'd be sort of like, and then just go and walk in the garden, go and find the fields, <laughs> go and have a sleep. You know, there was a sense of rest and recreation has to be part of the retreat. And there might be assigned times of silence, but she'd say, if you need to talk, talk, you know, find mm -hmm. someone and speak. So there's not this sense of it being too heavy or um, onerous. Uh, you're meant to come out of retreat refreshed. And yeah. playful lightness is part of that refreshment. Uh, so, her, so her slightly quirky sense of humour and all of that, I like that. You know, she, she used to talk about how she was ecumenical. She'd say she's, she was a cat of any other colour at a cat show. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've got the blue cats and the black cats and I'm the cat of any other colour. So this sense of, you know, I Different. don't really fit in the box. Um, so she'd have these... She, there's some letters that she wrote, you know, her dog writing to her, her cat writing to someone else's dog and there's this playful interchange. <laughs> there's kind of like a lot of um, 
a lot of humorous little quips coming through. And I, I love that. It's fun. <laughs> and also she really appreciated beauty and I resonate with that. Um, so she loved flowers. I'm a bit of a flower lover. In some of her letters, she talks about the light over Avila when she's uh, in Spain. So there's kind of like she's very appreciative of the beauty of creation, but also the beauty of art. In the late 1800s, she's going to Italy every year. And she said that that had a huge impact looking at the architecture and the art that really awoke her to this sense of an unseen reality. There's something behind this. So she wasn't brought up on religion, but really it's the beauty that she's seeing in amazing artworks and being inside churches, it's making her think there's something more than the scene reality. So that's another thing that I appreciate about her. It's interesting. In leading retreats, I've started incorporating an evening of play uh, yeah. where like we do stupid games together. Yeah. And there's something about we've been doing intense, you know, beautiful contemplative work. And and then we laugh together. It's a, and you just gave me language for it. It's the different sides of the coin of the spiritual life, prayer yeah. and play. Yeah, yeah. I think too, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that um, Eugene Peterson had, has had such a massive impact on me. When he used to talk about Sabbath rest, he would say, stop, rest. And then his two elements were prayer and play. And I've only just tweet that they're the two elements that have really impacted me most with Evelyn. So that's a fascinating little connection there. <laughs> that's good. Robin, it's so good to talk to you again. Thank you for getting up early on this uh, in, in Australia today. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me back, Nate. And that was Robin Wrigley Carr sharing from her book, The Spiritual Formation of Evelyn Underhill. Robin has also edited Evelyn's prayer book. You can find our conversation about this unique work in episode 231. Robin has a new work in progress. It's titled On Retreat with Evelyn Underhill, and it'll be out in November 2023. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. I'm grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well. <laughs>